episode number 60. My name is James, and today I am bringing to you a conversation I had with a guy named Jeremy Sherman. You probably have never heard of Jeremy, although you should have. He describes himself as a libertarian socialist. He has a PhD from Berkeley, if that tells you anything, in decision theory. He also describes his PhD as being in evolutionary epistemology, which is definitely up our alley, I think. And he has a book called What's Up with A-Holes? Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners. And I wanted to talk to Jeremy about what makes an asshole an asshole and how we can combat this tendency in ourselves. Obviously, we get into a whole lot more than just that, but I think the entire conversation kind of centers around assholery and the various ways that it crops up, especially in our own circles. I do want to let you know that I have done the drawing by the time you hear this for the Lifetime Master Membership of Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Congratulations to the winners. The winner of the Master Membership also got a Lifetime subscription to Blackbird. I also did three additional drawings for Lifetime Premium Blackbird subscriptions, and I'm sure that those folks will appreciate that. If you signed up for the drawing, you also are going to get 30 days of free Premium Blackbird, just so that you can kind of see what it's all about. So for those of you who didn't sign up and get that free 30 days, you can always go to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up for a paid membership to the premium feed for $7 a month. You're going to get early access to interviews, including sort of the pre-show banter that the guests and I engage in. Like, for instance, this interview with Jeremy Sherman included about six or seven minutes of just us kind of shooting the breeze, getting to know one another. And also it was recorded about a week before this episode is airing. So you get the episodes early, you get the kind of raw, uncut conversation between me and the guests. A lot of people appreciate that. And I know that when I support podcasters, early episodes and additional content is always kind of the perk that I go for. So I try to offer that to my subscribers as well. Let me tell you once again about Liberty Classroom. Now, the winner of that drawing has the Lifetime Master Membership, which is the $500 whole kit and caboodle plan. But subscriptions to Liberty Classroom actually start at about $89 a year. And for that small amount of money, you will get an entire curriculum full of history, economics, literature, logic, philosophy, political science, and the course selection is growing all the time. If that interests you at all, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom to sign up today. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well. As Tom Woods likes to say, at Liberty Classroom, you get the history and economics that they didn't teach you. And with that, here is my interview with Jeremy Sherman. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me, James. So, I mean, I'm guessing that most of the audience isn't familiar with your work. Certainly not. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Though I'm prolific, um, I'm also an unknown. Yeah. <laughs> not a, I mean, I've got, you know, I don't have 15 minutes of fame. I have 15 friends of fame. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I could tell you what I do. Sure. It's weird what I do. I call it my middle-aged spread, though uh, a couple months ago I, I passed out of middle age. I'm 65 now. But oh. um I'm what I call a cradle-to-grave researcher. I, for, for a quarter of a century now, I've been working closely with a Harvard-Berkeley neuroscientist, biological anthropologist, developing an explanation for something that scientists tend to skip over. It's a simple question. What is trying, and how did it start? Inanimate things aren't trying to do anything. Computers aren't trying to do anything. But organisms, even the simplest organism, is struggling for its existence. It's trying to stay alive. Trying is something different from nothing but chemistry. And nothing about our bodies uh, uh, violates the laws of physics. And nothing was added to our bodies to make us come alive. So there's this really simple question. What is trying and how did it start? And we have a, we have a whole theory we've developed over the years. So there's that. The guy I'm working with, this guy Terrence Deacon, had spent his first 20 years as a neuroscientist explaining the evolution and nature of language, human language, how it's different from what other, other semiotic systems. So a lot of my work is also on the evolution of language and how it makes us such a peculiar organism. And then the other part, and I'm simplifying a bit, but another big part of my work is what I call psychoproctology, which is trying to understand what's going on 
with assholes. So um, uh, I think of this work as cradle to grave from the origins of life to our grave situation. Mm-hmm. I think asshole epidemics, regardless of what they claim to believe, are a real problem um, that could lead to our extermination. And in the meantime, so be, beyond that, so I, I'm prolific. And that's largely because I'm safe and free. I've got, uh, I inherited money young. And uh, as I mentioned before the interview, I spent uh, seven years on a commune that was actually like boot camp. Um, I mean, you worked your ass off there. Yeah. Uh, it was just what I needed because I had lived a kind of cushy life. And there I was uh, working really hard in rural Tennessee um, and Guatemala with the commune. And so I've got a strong work ethic. So you can find way too much of me online, you know, articles and videos and, and podcasts. I have three podcasts. Um, so that's kind of who I am. And then in the evening I play music. I'm a vocalist and bassist in funk, jazz, soul bands, that kind of thing. That's what I do with me. (laughs) That's awesome. And you have a PhD, right? In decision theory. I have a, yes, I have a PhD and a master's in public policy. So I got a master's in public policy and then I went and got a PhD mostly inspired by a midlife crisis. I was realizing that the, the, the ideas that I thought the, the, the platitudes or, or pat ideas that I had thought would carry me through my life didn't seem like they would. I got really interested in decision-making, decision theory, and evolutionary theory. So my PhDs in evolutionary epistemology, which is basically just trying to understand how organisms choose among interpretations, how we shop among interpretations, how we do and how how we could for better adaptiveness. But it's it's um, it's a heavy handle, evolutionary epistemology, but it's basically how do you shop among interpretations? There's lots of ways to interpret a situation. Mm-hmm. What goes on in that process? Uh, what's interpretation all about? So I, this is not on my list of, of questions, but uh, as long as I've got a Good. PhD in, <laughs> in evolutionary epistemology, where do you stand on the... Uh, current kind of big debate among at least people on the right. I'm guessing this exists everywhere, but uh, the curse or the blessing of postmodernism. Oh, actually, we've, I don't think we've ever seen as postmodern a movement as the right wing has chosen to be in recent years. I totally years. agree. Okay. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and it's thoroughly fucked. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, a, it's a total disaster. And, um, and yet, let me say, I do think that reality is open to interpretation. Yeah. Um, that we will debate forever what reality contains. But I don't think we have much uh, debate about what about the container itself. I think people mostly agree that reality is the combination of direct and indirect threats and opportunities that change over time. That'll mm-hmm. fuck you up if you ignore them. That's what we mean by it. That's basically what we mean by reality. And so All we'll right. debate what it contains, but I don't think we have much debate about the container. The problem with postmodernism is not the idea that uh, things are open to interpretation. It's the ungroundedness of pretending that there is, that it's happening in a vacuum. Sure. That reality, I mean, the only rule for 3.8 billion years is adapt to reality or die. And unless you're, totally fine with dying, which I don't know anybody who really is. I mean, that would be, it's, it's not in our nature to be, uh, the, the set aside the suicidal and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. but, but still our tendency is to prefer life over death. So adapting to reality is the one thing that's missed. And it's kind of a disaster. My, my colleague, this guy from, for 250, uh, for 20, 25 years, not 250 years, uh, that would be dating myself. But, Almost um, though, right? Uh, Boomer? No. So he's he's stuck. He's a biological anthropologist in Berkeley's Department of Anthropology, which has gone very postmodern. It was kind of a founding institution of cultural anthropology. Um, and no, it's frustrating as all get out because they, they have very little tolerance for talk about even biology, let alone reality. Why do you think it is that, and maybe this gets into asshole theory, really. Why do you it think does. it is that even, that even the, you know, sort of open-minded people are so dogmatic and authoritarian. Even. Oh, oh, yeah, it does get into that. So from my perspective, simply put, language makes us anxious bunnies. If you compare what we have to deal with, what you could worry about at night to what a dog could worry about at night, there's just no, there's, there's no comparison. You know, I, I, I actually would have more sympathy for, uh, the bug who turned into Gregor Samsa, Samsa than I have for Gregor Samsa turning into a bug. If you're a bug, 
you don't have that much to worry about. But if I don't know, I'm talking. I'm referring to Metamorphosis by yeah. Kafka, which but is anyway, two episodes in a row where the guest referred to Metamorphosis, which I haven't. Read. Oh, the, how you like so, that? No, <laughs> you gotta I, get the trust. I guess, I, I guess the it's trifecta. a sign. I need to read Kafka. No, yeah. yeah the, the the point of it is, it is a shit show to be a human. The quantity of real and uh, and imaginary threats and missed opportunities that could that we could worry about. The fact that we are the only organism that can see in great detail the inevitability of our own deaths. I mean, we it, it's 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 a white knuckle ride being a human. And the other thing that language affords us is a capacity to deny or deflect anything that uh, disturbs us. So this is so. And this is grounded in the origins of life approach that I take. So the thing that, or, the original trying that organisms have to do from our perspective is to try to regenerate faster than we degenerate. As everything's falling apart, that's the second law of thermodynamics. So the job one is not reproduction. It's protecting yourself against degeneration okay. and regenerating what degenerates. And now, to regenerate what regenerates, uh, what degenerates, you need to take in energy and resources. But energy and resources flowing through you are exactly what degenerate you. This is the paradox of being alive. Um, that is, and and organisms handle it by taking in food, but not poison. You know, water, not you know. It, it, so that's selective interaction. We've got to take in the energy we can use to regenerate ourselves, but protect against the energy that keep that that degenerates us. Now, you apply that in the realm of language, and what you get is confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Confirmation bias is you take in the ideas that reaffirm you, that, that generate, regenerate your mojo, and you keep out the ideas that degenerate your mojo. So it would be very natural for humans. So I would say decent people, non-assholes, know that confirmation bias is a problem they have to manage. Mm -hmm. Assholes treat confirmation bias as a solution to all their problems. That is, they can just deflect anything that makes them anxious. And um, and it's more than that. They can also accuse others. You know, there's all sorts of interesting things. And so that's why my approach to assholery is completely nonpartisan. I mean, I do know libertarian assholes, but I also have been dealing with, you know, Buddhist, leftist assholes. It's not about what you claim to believe, I don't think at all. It's just about how you strut it as though you're God. And I'm saying most fundamentally, it's much easier to play God than it is to be human. So that's that's the tie-in, and it would be a reason why people would check out of reality. Um, it would seem to me. I mean, just it would be a natural thing to do if you can get away with it. So a lot of my work is on how to make it costly to be an asshole. <laughs> why don't you give your kind of objective definition of asshole before we get too deep into it? Well, in a way, I already have, but okay. um, because I'm I'm saying in a way that it's it's using confirmation bias as the solution to all of your problems. Mm. I think that uh, there are some details to how one would do that. I think you need to do two things. One is you need to what I'll call spin dominance. That is, you need to bias all interpretations. You need to employ fake objectivity to call things in a way that forces one interpretation over another. But you also need what I'll call frame dominance, which is uh, where you get to be the umpire on any debate you enter, what I call Trump-iring. That is, you play Trump cards as the umpire. You get to okay. umpire and Trump. So, my, you know, the, I don't use the word asshole in the book, except perhaps on the cover. People are encouraging me to okay. use it on the cover. I don't know whether to use it or a-hole. I realized just this afternoon that I that I don't want to offend people with dirty words. I mean, I don't want to lose readers through dirty uh, sure. dirty words on the cover. I want to lose them through controversial theories. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, I don't want to lose anybody. But um, but I do end up coming down to the term Trump bot. Um, and it's not about Donald Trump, though I would say he is a master of this. It's sure. about the double entendre of the word Trump. Trump means fake, and it means uh, beats everything else. And Bot means that you're doing it automatically. So a lot of people are talking about what motivates uh, assholes or that they have a chip on their shoulder or that they're narcissist and self-infatuated. I think it's just a very convenient habit that anybody could fall into if they're allowed to get away with it of basically playing God. And you can do that with what I call the wild card trump card formula, mm -hmm. which is it's a formula of rhetorical moves that anybody can pull out in the service of any 
crusade or no crusade. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a cause to be an asshole, but it's basically moves that make it so no matter what you do, you can do anything at all. You're perfectly free, absolute wild card and absolute crump card. Whatever you do is the best, no contest. And you can do it just by uh, bullshitting with cliches. I think that's one of the reasons why shy people will become brave when they're assholes. When they, when they discover the wild card, trump card formula, they are ready to have a debate. Not a debate. They, come, they sidle up like exhibitionists. They pretend they want sure. a debate. And then when, you in, when they've engaged you, they open their trench coat. And no matter what you do in response to them, they've got some answer that makes them feel triumphant. So it's a formula. It's a habit. Anybody would get into it. I don't think that assholes are particularly self-infatuated. I think you actually have to lose some self-awareness in order to play this habit out. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a mindless swellhead game. And like I say, it's got nothing. You could do it for, you can be a libertarian and not be an asshole, or you can be a libertarian and an asshole. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a Sure. leftist. You can have long hair like me and be a total asshole. I, I could well be one. I don't think I am. I worry about whether I am, which is a good sign that I might not be, but I don't know. I don't get to claim to know who's the asshole. I only can make better guesses or worse guesses. <laughs> it sounds almost synonymous with sophistry. It, it has a lot in common with it. It's a, it's a hermetic hermeneutic. That is the point about it. The whole point of it is perfect self-sealing. That is, I mean, I think that the freedom that libertarians, the, the libertarians I've dealt with who are mostly assholes, the freedom they really want is freedom from ever having to learn again, ever having to think again. And, and uh, I mean, and I'm not saying that's true of all. My read von Mises, I had a feeling that he had a little bit of that going on. I have never read a book that reads more like Marx than von Mises, von Mises, von Mises. I mean, the whole idea that there's some natural law and he's figured it out and strive for the inevitable and uh, anarchists unite. I mean, it's so Marxist. It's incredible. <laughs> but the, it was the era they were writing in. They thought they had fit. They thought they could do to the social sciences what was being done to the physical sciences. That's all. It was the tail end of the modern. I mean, it's what ushered in the postmodern age, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think he would... If you like just dip your toe in libertarian Twitter right now, you would see that people are realizing this. That like I'm we delighted thought to we had that. it all figured I'm out. Delighted to hear that. And there is a huge identity crisis right now. There's and actually right now, just like today as we're talking, people have been just talking about how today liberty Twitter, so to speak, is more divided over the libertarians and the post-libertarians who don't actually call themselves no, post-libertarians. This is wonderful to hear. Yeah. No, I they, I, I heard definite. Hardening of the smarteries. Uh, it, it, it was. It was a. I mean, one thing I noticed is that all the libertarians I ever dealt with, um, their examples and their illustrations were all about more freedom for them. If you want to convince me you're actually after liberty, tell me about why why you think your rivals need more liberty. I mean, it, so there was there was certainly a kind of wanking about it back then. I'd be delighted to read about this. The that there's actually a debate that you're actually dealing with ideas is fabulous. I, yeah. Uh, hats off to you guys. Well, and I wanted to get into that too. So asshole is singular and like cult is the plural of asshole, right? Yeah. For me, I'm not claiming that that's the official definition. It's oh, just, sure. no, yeah, I, just, yeah. I just have to hold myself to that consistent definition if I'm going to use it that way. And I think it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's basically all of these, like a single person who argues basically as if his heuristics are the Bible truth and there can be nothing other than this. That's right. Circling the wagons with all of these other people who believe in the same thing. That's right. And eventually you get to a cult. Yeah, it's an epidemic of assholery is basically what it yeah. is. And it's just the biggest asshole is kind of at the top of that dominance hierarchy and then you've got a whole bunch of assholes all the way down. And of course, if there's among these assholes someone who starts to think differently from the rest of them, then he's, he's not just as bad as the outgroup. He's like worse than the outgroup because he's a he's a traitor and he's he's a heretic and he's a apostate and all the other all right. The other he had found the truth and then he lost it. That's worse yeah. than never never finding the truth yeah. in the first place. So I guess I've kind of got the answer to this question now. I have it written down, but uh, I want to hear yeah, I guess what you what you would say. Why do you think it is that the biggest assholes like rise in the in the hierarchy of of the, of the social hierarchy? Because. That's what people are in it for. They may think they joined for the cause, but they stayed for the strut. And the person who struts it the, the, the best is going to be um, 
he's providing, he's the role model. I mean, I just think that there's a, I, I think that most of the, most of the Trump people I've talked to are just Trump wannabes. They sure. they want that perfect freedom and perfect safety that it looks like he's got at the top. They're mm-hmm. Hannity wannabes. They're Tucker wannabes. They ape and parrot the stuff that those guys say. They will be lionized this way. And now let me take it to the other realm. I have noticed that. So I'm I'm an ironist. I'm a fallibilist ironist. And I would say that assholes are fake infallibilists. Fallibilism is is an idea out of philosophy that you can't reach 100% certainty on anything, Sure, which means that you can make better or worse bets, but you can never have absolute certainty. So my motto as a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I remain still more confident that it is a bet. So that's, that's fallibilism. Okay. That gets into what you were saying earlier about we might not understand the contents, but we understand the container. You understand Sorry. that it is a bet, but what what the bet consists of is a little cloudy. Yeah, and, and also it's a, it's a it's a wiggly, squirrely world, which is why I'm an ir- ironist. That is, mm-hmm. I, even in physics, there are reversals, and here we are trying to track reversals, <laughs> which is like we're trying to ride a winding road, which means that life will be a little slapstick. It'll be there will be ironic situations. You will have done the right thing. You will have placed a good bet, and it'll come out just the opposite of what you expected. Or you will have made the worst decision in your life, and it will turn out to have been the best decision of your life. That is, there are going to be reversals, and the approach to that is it's fucking dead serious. We could die, and at the same time, we don't have the control that we'd want if we were serious. So it's kind of funny. So that's why I'm a fallibilist ironist. Um, about these things. And now I'm forgetting where we started with this thing. You had just said something about a question that... Um, oh, why does it seem like assholes rise and... Oh, the assholes hierarchy? rise. So if so, it's a deeply uncomfortable position to be in, to be a fallibilist ironist. Um, there are alternatives, I think. So one alternative is the kind of cynical hypocrisy where nothing means anything. This is the postmodern move, but it's, I mean, it's it's had lots of forms over the years you know, the kind of sweeping skepticism about everything, which is actually a very easy move to make. That's another response to it. Um, but anybody who anybody who gives you a way to feel as though you have resolved it all, that you are freed from doubt, is going to be very alluring. That if you align with them, you will be, it's very alluring. And it's also why you end up getting suck-ups for anarchy. It's just, it's fascinating. I mean, the, the paradoxes, but I'm saying there is no alternative that there are really two, two main alternatives for dealing with these paradoxes of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you take a, you take a moral principle, like be tolerant. And then you realize that actually that's a paradox, be intolerant of intolerance, or you shouldn't be judgmental or don't be negative. All, all of those are self-negating. So one answer to that is to pretend that you're, it's what I, it's what I call um, fundamentalist equivocation. No, I'm only being loving. No, I'm never being judgmental. No, I'm never negative. And then you come up with some bullshit euphemism that makes it so you can pretend you are not being those things when in fact you are like everybody else. Another one is to say, ha ha, see, these moral principles are completely hypocritical. They're all bullshit. And therefore I'm going to live my life as if nothing matters. To me, the answer is fallibilist irony. When I see a paradox, I roll up my sleeves. I realize this is something I'm going to be dealing with for the rest of my life. Be intolerant of intolerance means that I'm going to have to be intolerant sometimes and tolerant sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, 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 and, and the question then becomes, how, how do I do that best I can? That's what fallibilist irony is about. But that's very far afield from, all I'm saying is those first two moves, either the hypocritical cynic, cynic uh, uh, the yeah, the cynical hypocrite like Trump, or the fundamentalist like Rajneesh, or you know someone, or any of the religious guys who claim that they are walking the straight and narrow. When no, of course they're not. Nobody does. We're it's a winding road. We're trying to avoid errors on both sides. I don't want to be too tolerant. I don't want to be too intolerant. I'm trying to figure out situation by situation. I would never obviously call Trump an ideologue. So he probably fits in the other group. But if you look at the current state of the right, where you have people like Steve Bannon, for instance, and possibly, I, I, like Curtis Yarvin's probably in there, um, certainly a lot of the libertarian theorists, most of whom 
are dead now, but there's a, there's still a handful of like actual people who are doing theory, not just popularizing theory that's already been laid. So perhaps these people are assholes because they have they've developed the traits that you described earlier. On the other hand, you've got people. I would certainly put like Kamala Harris, the former governor of New York. His, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Cuomo. Uh, yeah, and Mayor de Blasio as well. Yeah, these are people who ideology doesn't really matter. And so they're not out there making these arguments the same way that the people you describe as assholes are are doing. They're just taking the power and they're being assholes in that way. They're being authoritarians. They're That's just, interesting. Okay. But that doesn't fit your mold of asshole, but that's kind of how when a person hears the word asshole, it's the bully. It's the, yeah, the guy well, who I beats his wife up. The, yeah, the I actually, I, I had to write that up this morning. No, I don't think I don't think dominance or unkindness define an asshole. Um, okay, cool. I think that's problematic. If that were two, then anybody who won, uh, uh, who prevailed against me and thereby disappointed me and right. was therefore unkind, would be an asshole. That won't work. I think that what makes someone an asshole is not paying attention to reality. Okay. That is someone who actually turns it into a game where the game, the object of the game, is to beat reality instead of. Uh, accommodating it. That's, okay. I think that assholes are anti-adaptive. That's the problem. So it's not ideological either. No, the challenge around, yeah, so I, I would say this about ideology too. And by the way, this is just all my guesses so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fact, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I put, I, I put, I've been playing with covers and I had one that said, that had a gold medal on it and it said 2001. Like I had one on a medal and it says, the best the author could come up with so far. You know? <laughs> and I dedicate the book to future psychoproctologists who will do a much better job than me. Right. It's, you know, it's fallibilism. But anyway, I do make this distinction. We talk about cult members as true believers. I think that's mm -hmm. a misnomer. Okay. I think there are actually three categories. There are true believers who are really trying to live by the ideology. And then there are uh, false believers of two kinds. There are honest false believers and there are dishonest ones. Okay. So the honest false believers, I, I was inspired to write about them when I went on a t speaking tour in mainland China and was hanging out with these Chinese buds. And I'd ask them, are you communists? And they say, yeah, of course we're communists. We don't, I mean, yeah, I, wore the, I wear the team jersey. I don't think it has any relevance to my life. I don't think I'm entitled to any special rights about it. It's just my team has that jersey and we wear it. Yeah, and we take one class in in communist studies, but no, it doesn't have any bearing on how we live. We're a capitalist company, country that is thriving on capitalism right uh -huh. now. And I don't, not only that, we have fuck all control over what goes on in our government. There was a kind of a liberty in, in, their, in their impotence there. That is, the chances of anybody having any influence on the government is fat, fat chance. It's not, so they, so they go on with their lives. They wear, you know, they're members of the communist party. They, they had to excuse themselves from various academic meetings to go off to their meetings, but no, they didn't take any special credit for it. That's the honest false believers. They know that they're just, it's just a team Jersey. The dishonest false believers are the one who give me the most trouble, uh, who, who are the most troubling to me. These yeah. are the people who don't, they're not true believers. They're not trying to live by it. They wear the jersey and they think that it entitles to them them to special privileges. Yeah. So that's a distinction I would make. And then as for playing out the particulars of those characters, yeah, we could debate that, but it's actually not where our, my focus is. I, I think there are people in, in politics who are trying very hard to hold on to their ideals. I think we... Um, we we are slow to recognize. We are we are indulgent in not recognizing what a clusterfuck it is to run a government of our size. I hang out with Dan Ellsberg. Dan Ellsberg's a, a, a old buddy of mine. He lives here in Berkeley. He founded Behavioral Economics. He wrote the Pentagon Papers. Big whistleblower. You you probably heard of him, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So we're sitting there at, over lunch one time, and he says the government lied, and I said, Yeah, Dan, but you got to admit <laughs> a government has got to lie. So when I hear, when I talk to friends who say look the government lied I I say look in a marriage marriages are really intimate and you really can't afford to be caught in a lie because it'll cost you for eternity mm -hmm. and you can't afford to be completely honest either because it'll cost you for eternity now magnify that or multiply that by up to 250 million people you've got to maintain intimacy with that many people so the question is how to manage to have some ideology 
while also running within this government. And we often play the role of consumers who expect more and pay less. And we're like Karens about our politicians, like they don't serve me well enough. And they, if I were them, I would do this. No, if you were them, you'd be in the set, you'd be, you'd be trying to dance in molasses just like them. No, uh -huh. it's, it's, so that's one distinction I would say is important here. I think that I'm on the same page as you, as far as that goes, which is one of the many, many emergent schools of libertarian thought that like, look, we're not going to get control of this entity and we shouldn't want to because we have better things to do with our time. We can empower Amen. ourselves yes. without needing to empower ourselves politically because who the fuck wants political power anyway? No, it's, right. It's No, that's, <laughs> that's my real objection is the whole idea that a lot of the, the movements are basically trying to turn statecraft into a vanity project. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, yeah. get yourself yeah. a fucking room. Look, I I do all sorts of stuff to, to feel like a god or feel like I rule the world. I watch Marvel comic movies. You know, I masturbate. I do all sorts of things. I do it offline. You don't do that with statecraft. <laughs> I want a government that's so boring I can get on with my life. Yeah. That may make me a libertarian. It just doesn't make me a noisy one. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have a friend who, uh, he grew up in a military family. He, he himself was in the military. And I don't necessarily share this interpretation, but uh, when I was watching some, you know, 9-11 conspiracy theory documentary, and they were like, and the, they had charges planted in the buildings already, and the building just collapsed on itself in its footprint. And buildings don't do that. And like, they're showing the physics of why a plane can't knock down a building and all this other stuff. And my buddy who, you know, grew up in a military family was like, yeah, of course they had charges in the buildings. That's why all three of them fell and not just the two that were hit with planes. Do you know how many government offices were in those buildings? Like literally, of course, the government blew up those buildings. They had no other choice. They had no idea what the hell was going on. And that sparked a little bit in my head like, well, I mean, if that's true, it makes absolute sense. And it blows all these stupid conspiracy theories out of the water. You know, I mean, what do I know? I'm, yeah. no, I'm no engineer. But, but like, you know, I mean, you never know what the government's up to. And it doesn't, and really, obviously, aside from the lives lost, what does it matter to me? Well, there, there is a challenge around that. So for me, I ground everything down to dilemmas. I don't think principles or solve much. Mm. I think dilemmas are more fundamental. So mm -hmm. I have to acknowledge that governments lie. And yet I cannot take them at their word when they say, oh, you wouldn't understand it's deeper than you know. Right. There are other factors. So I have to maintain a kind of vigilance, but that kind of vigilance is very different from the cowboy playing crusader where you're going to save the country from. I mean, that's actually just cosplay. And I, mm. I love cosplay, but I do it at Burning Man or someplace else. I don't do it around the <laughs> government. It's a different yeah. business. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been to a Trump rally and, and it was just like a metal concert. There was cosplay. Everybody was singing along with the lyrics without paying any attention to what they meant just because yes. they sounded bad ass. The only difference was that after a metal concert, people find their cars and get back to reality. That was the only difference I could tell. So do you think that there's uh that there's like gender differences between the way that in the way that assholery kind of manifests itself, do yeah. do female assholes become Karens and male assholes become Trumps, or is it less bifurcated than that? It's somewhat bifurcated, and I would say that's got to do with the gender dialectic over the years. So men have these stentorian voices and their fierceness and all of that, and women have, in general, been able to get power by summoning moral moral authority. Sure. That is, you can cite, uh, yeah, you can cite what's what's proper. And, and uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why women can be slut-shamed because they lose credibility when they do that. But yeah. men can be jerk-shamed. I'm, 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 I'm single now. I'm very happily single uh, after a, a, a fabulous run. But, um, but part of it is that I, I really break out in a rash when I'm disappointing to a woman. Mm. And I don't want that kind of influence on me. I call it yin-timidation. It's the intimidation that comes in a yin form. But it's exactly what you would expect. And women are, they have a challenge right now because at this point, they are losing some of that moral high ground because, first of all, the institutions that they re relied on are dissolving around us. And second of all, because they actually have, have tipped their hand. We now know that they can be as beastly as men. Mm -hmm. So the moral high ground is harder for them to hold on to. 
It's and also on top of that, you've got the whole uh, too cheap to meter porn world, which is making it so the the power they had over men from being alluring is also yeah. inflated. That is, it's diminished in its value. It's a really hard time for women to figure out how to have their power. But those would be some of the standard moves that they would make. And yet you'll also get that. So I consider Don, uh, uh, I consider um, Mike Pence to be a total asshole, but he's a polite asshole. That is, mm-hmm. you can do it with a furrowed brow of earnest avuncular okay. or paternal style. You can do it without ever gnashing your teeth. This is an important part of it. That is, there, there are so many... If humans are ingenious about anything, it's about ways to say no. Our noping strategies, our don't go there's are phenomenal. There are so many different ways you can do it. You can do it fiercely. You can do it with a sigh of of exhaustion. You can do it with, you know. So, yeah, there would be many, many manifestations, and men would favor some over women and vice versa. What are the ramifications of assholery being the sort of order of the day in politics? Where Where is this going to lead, do you think? Well, I think that it's going to lead to uh, an an idiot power movement. I think it has. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so I'm really uh, I notice that there are cults and counter cults. That that so the epidemic doesn't just have one flavor. It's different. It's the same bullshit, but different branding. And often the branding is the opposite. So you get Catholic Church and Protestants. You get communism and libertarianism as a cult. You'll get. There are there are these these things where they square off against each other, and it's to their advantage to pretend that it's about ideology when actually I think they're doing exactly the same thing, um, it, just with different branding. So we're already seeing um, that Trump made it safe for idiot power movements, and we're seeing a lot of them rise up. That is, there's going to be a whole lot of me too. Or copycat, just like when uh, Muhammad or or Christ came out. It, shortly after they gained in popularity, there were suddenly dozens of them, yeah. uh, all arguing from different revelations and all of that. So, I think we're in trouble that way. And I actually don't. So this is why I think there is no alternative. I think it is enabling to address them on ideological grounds. I think that any of these movements, any of these idiot power movements. That's, it's not that the emperor has no clothes. It's that they are nothing but clothes. That is, there's no one there around the values. <laughs> they are insisting that their values are existential, that they trump all other values. They, you watch their behavior. They don't give a rat's ass about those ideas. That's why the focus, I think, is on making it cost them to be an asshole by pointing out, by exposing the, the moves they're making Basically, to tar baby them, though I would use the word gum baby because gum baby was the original African word for this. You that is, you accuse them of something that since they're one trick phonies, they've only got this one trick. So you accuse them of the trick of saying and doing anything to feel triumphant moment to moment. What they will do next affirms your accusation. Mm-hmm. So I think that we are completely missing the boat when we we enable them by addressing their ideology or reasoning with them. Um, that's what you do with decent people. But once you've made a careful, calculated guess that you're dealing with an asshole, you drop that. You don't let them lead you around by the nose to whatever issue or example they think illustrates the absolute universal truth of whatever they are posturing at. You don't follow them around that way. You certainly don't take moral guidance from them. And you simply keep on hammering away that this is what they're doing. And then on top of that, there's a way I, I play, I lean into the, the irony. Um, I, I caught one out the other day by saying, um, and I was saying, now you're going to return, you're going to attack me now with a snarky, snide response. <laughs> now I knew what I was doing here. The guy said, I, I, this is a guy who was clearly going to maneuver his way out of it. So he said, no, actually, if I've ever been snarky or snide, uh, snide to you, I apologize. And I, and I said, then allow me to follow up with some snarky, snide comments because I think you deserve them. That is, you can, you can tangle these guys up because they claim to have moral principles that aren't really moral principles. There are times okay. to be snide and snarky. But if you, you know, there are, there's a place for all that stuff. But so if they say you're a name caller, I say, of course I'm a name caller. I don't want to just name call. I want to name call with surgical precision. Whereas you want to pretend that you're not a name caller when name calling is in fact a name, you know, so, so 
there are those are the two main tricks i think and and this is i don't assume that this will ever take off i think we will continue to have people who i mean i think that assholes thrive on other people taking their braying as real words and as long as other people do that they don't have to so as long as people can be can be shamed by an asshole into thinking about whether they're being too snarky or snide or whatever then they will um then the the assholes can lead them around by the nose. So I think it's really important we stop listening to them when, once, once it's become clear that they don't actually believe, they don't act on anything they're saying. They just love mm-hmm. to, they love to preach to distract from their, it's basically they're blaring their police sirens so loud that they don't have to hear, that they distract from their own uh, violations. That's how I think about it. I think we're in for an idiot power epidemic at this point would you also consider like the i guess the woke movements you know the people the people that no fabulous yeah, white no. supremacy and, and transphobia and everything around every corner are these also idiot assholes or are they something different so i just i'm glad you brought that up i brought i wrote an article about woke this last week woke is a new term for a very old concept mm. in buddhist it's called sudden school um in plato's cave, it's coming out into the light and suddenly seeing reality. Um, in the Matrix version of Plato, it's the red pill. Um, it's uh, epiphanies. It's They go way back. This idea, this dream that you could suddenly see the light. I once was lost, but now I'm found. So woke as a generic term is a very important concept to have in sure. mind. This idea that we could transcend everything. I would say that there's by far no woker movement, nor no the wokest movement right now, the most cancel culture, the most PC is by far the Trump administ- uh, the Trump movement. It is close. It's totally woke. No, I, I, I know you may not because you make an association, but I live in Berkeley and I watch this woke movement and nah, it's, a, it's, it's, gonna, it's not going to work. Okay, nobody no, wakes up like that. Nobody has ever lost their job for accusing someone of being a transphobe. People have only lost their jobs for being accused of being transphobes. So the people on either side of the woke slash red pilled slash whatever side of of things, clearly the scale is tipped in one side's favor. You're not yeah, you're I, not getting someone fired by calling them a Joe Biden supporter. But if someone wears a MAGA hat to work, that is grounds for termination. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. So and and, and uh, so we may well end up disagreeing about that, and that's just fine with me. Um, I don't need to persuade you of this. I'm talking about the concept of woke. Mm. And um, and we could go on to talk about how draconian a movement is. But if you want to talk about people who are transformed and see the light and have revelation and now talk like they have the answer and there's no more need for them to think, all they need to do is go out and pro- promote their idea to far and wide. That's a definition of woke that's been around a long time. I find the term ironic because I wake up every morning, but I'm drowsy by the night. It's not like you wake up once and for all. And if you're talking about that term alone, I stand by my argument without without needing you to agree with it. By far the wokest, biggest woke movement right now is the Trumpists. And by far the one that claims that they aren't is the Trump movement. That is, they're sure that everybody else is woke and they can cite chapter and verse about all the draconian things that are happening. And they're not very good at uh, at, cha- at citing chapter and verse about all the draconian things that, that the Trump administration did, Vindman, for example. I mean, there's plenty. But never mind all that. I don't want to get into uh, counting up tallies. I'm talking about the term woke. And the idea that you could re- you could suddenly discover the light and then be freed from doubt forever. Mm. That's what woke means. That's what it's always been about. It's a very strong human appetite. Um, and I totally get why. Because doubt, doubt will fuck with you, man. Self-doubt, you get enough doubt about what to do, you'll end up with self-doubt. Your whole mojo drains out. It's miserable. I mean, I've written whole books about doubt. I wrote a book called Doubt, A User's Guide. I wrote a book called Negotiate With Yourself and Win. I'm, I could take a tax write-off for doubt, but I don't like doubt. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't like it. So the idea that you could suddenly see the light and now you are officially a patriot and a Christian and all of that sort of yeah. stuff, very old, very old. And that's what I was talking about when I said that it's the, it's the wokest thing around right now by far. 
So would you then say that both sides of that woke coin, I guess, maybe it's all one side. Would you say that they are all engaged in assholery though? Yes. So if you mean that people have woken up, for example, read the book cast or read something that- No, no, no. I mean mean the political movements, the Trump movement and the social justice movement. So yes, same bullshit, different branding. Okay. I'm I'm right there with you on that. That is, it's a, it's a problem. And I also, woke inevitably breaks down. It cannot work. Stalin was a woke movement, for God's mm-hmm. sakes. Yeah. You know, or or communism was a woke movement. These are, they they can't work. The naivete you need in order to galvanize a woke movement is a very naivete that will undo it. Libertarianism was a woke movement. I, yeah. I watched friends fall for it. So no, I, I, and whether you do it to the when you whether you fall left, whether you fall right, whether you however you fall to self certainty, you're fucked. Okay. It's not going to work. The world doesn't work that way. It's gotten more and more complicated. The idea that the answer is simple and obvious and universal and eternal that's not going to work in times like this. It's way more complicated. And yeah. so that's why you connect assholery with cults. That's right. That's right. That would be we have one of the now reasons. just gotten into the definition of a cult. Just a hyper dogmatic way of, of seeing the world. Yeah, it's a often, hermetic hermeneutic. Yeah. Often yeah. surrounding like an individual. Yeah. So how do we identify assholery in ourselves? Well, it's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I would say that the first step is if you wonder if you're an asshole, it's less likely that you are. Mm-hmm. That is, if you don't want to be an asshole, expect some anxiety. For me, the anxiety, the equanimity I, that I seek, I still deal with people. I live in Berkeley, so I, li- I deal with people who talk about mindfulness or equanimity and all that. My favorite kind of equanimity is when I am equally anxious that I've gone too far in opposite directions. You know, if someone says you're arrogant to me, I say, um, I, I find it interesting that arrogant and too arrogant are treated as synonymous. Hmm. To me, the real question Good. is, yeah. am I too arrogant or not arrogant enough for the situation? I don't live by these this, this idea that there are what I call virtue maxing. Yeah. For example, that the solution is to maximize love and eliminate hate. Just absurd to me. And yet that kind of talk, whether or maximize liberty, minimize constraints, any of those virtue maxing things miss the point. There are two sides to this winding road we're driving down. I got to watch out on both sides. I can't just maximize to one side. Be like having some backseat driver tell me, no, to ride this winding road, just jerk your your wheel all the way over to one side and leave it there. It's not going to work. Um, I have to figure out situation to situation. So if you are doing that, if you are paying attention to whether you're too arrogant or not arrogant enough, whether you're, you know, just all of those things, whether you're too tolerant or not tolerant enough. Yeah. It's very, all of that stuff, that's, that's going to, that means you're actually riding the road with some awareness that you're on the road and it's per situation. You're not going to you're not going to ground down to these moral principles that nobody could live by anyway. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, it's basically about finding the the Aristotle's golden mean. Yeah, and and just to be clear, the, in a way, he meant this. This is this is in the Nicomachean, Nicomachean ethics, mm-hmm. but it's also sometimes overlooked. I talk about it as hard left, hard right, hard center, hard choices. Hard left is love is the answer, and then you get burnt by that, and you say, wait, no, hard right, toughness is the answer, and then you get burnt by that, then you say, no, tough love is the answer. <laughs> Like it's a knot down the middle. And then you get burned by that and you realize, no, tough love is the question. When to be tough, when to be loving. Because the Jews couldn't the Jews couldn't go to Hitler and say, look, you want to kill six million of us. You want we want you to kill zero. So we'll settle on three million. <laughs> that's, 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 that's not how this works. <laughs> yeah. So it's situational. That's cool. So if you're it's situational and you're yeah, that's right. If and it's complicated. So if we're wondering if we're assholes, if we're and Good Lord, if if you're hyper dogmatic and feel like you have all the answers, even if you have all the charts and graphs and data and everything else to back you up, the other side is also citing their sources too. And, you're, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, I get it. Yes, I, I wrote a poem about this the other day. So okay. this is related, it's really short and it's not fancy. When in your youth, you find a truth that pierces you to your core, do you call it the truth or remember your youth and go searching for some more. So what I'm saying is that there's a tendency when you when you can make a plausible argument, like a route to a destination, 
to think you're done. You're like an egg that's been fertilized by the one sperm and now you're closed. This would be a standard human response to I have found a plausible argument. And then you look around and say, wait a second, actually, this is a this is one argument among many. And so you go looking for other truths. It's really two different ways, of, uh, two different forms of study. A lot of people study just to reinforce the one idea they've got. They suffer from only mm-hmm. brainchild syndrome. Uh, and so they're just going to reinforce that they're everything they're going to everything's going to be a case in the favor of that. And there's the other kind where you open up into the clusterfuck and you start reading counter positions and dealing with the tangle. And I got to say, from uh, from an entertainment point, uh, if you can get over the stress of it, it's way more entertaining to deal with the tensions between these different theories. That's why I said I was a libertarian socialist. I mean, well, I'm, I'm both. I'm interested in constraints and freedom. <laughs> this morning, maybe yesterday morning, something I was listening to a podcast where some someone was kind of giving a synopsis of the left and right kind of concepts of private property or lack thereof. And <laughs> my brain was like, hey, you know what? The leftists have a point. And that hurt. That was that <laughs> that was that was a little bit of cognitive dissonance right there. Yeah, that's right. Which leads me yeah. to one of the final questions, probably. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between doubt and cognitive dissonance, if there is one? I think there isn't much of one, but okay. let's let's try this out as related to it. I do a, a lot of work among the cognitive scientists, and I don't think that they're they've got it right. I don't think the consciousness is a computer. Okay. It's a virtual computer maker. That is, if there's one thing, we want to turn as much as we can into habit, reliable habits so that we can free up our mind to deal with other things. In, in decision theory, it's called satisficing. You yes. come up with a good enough solution and you go with that and you free up your mind for the next thing. So I'm really and- grateful for my ingratitude. The fact that I pay very little attention to everything that's working for me. And that, I I assume, well, just to clarify, I assume that's where cliche and heuristic and things like that come from, right? Yeah, all the gestures we make, but also all the behavioral ones. For example, today was a kind of a slouchy day. My daughter came into town. I've been visiting with her. And yet still I managed to generate 240 billion new cells today. Impressive work. I did all that by habit. I didn't do it. I didn't think about it. I didn't feel it. And yet if I didn't do that, I'd be fucked tomorrow because I lost about that many cells today too. So habit goes all the way down, and at the conscious level, yes. I and by the way, I don't. This is one of the reasons why I don't think assholes need to pay any attention to their values. You find you stumble on some phrase, mm-hmm. maybe you parrot it from somewhere. It gets you what you want. Why would you ever stop doing it? It's a ha- you turn it into a habit as quickly as possible. So yes, cliches fit right in there. But what does rise to consciousness is the stuff that you cannot yet resolve to habit the ambiguities and ambivalences. And those were actually what got me interested in decision theory in the first place. These situations where you can't tell whether it's A or B, and what you would do in situation A is the opposite of what you do in situation B. Those are fascinating to me. Why? They're the things that rise to consciousness. Those are the things we're still waiting to have uh, translated into habit. But once they're habits, we just do them. And And the longer we do them, the harder it is to change them. That's where the that's where the disappointment, uh, uh, for example, this morning that you experienced would come in. And I'd have the same thing. If I discovered a cosmic wedgie that proved me wrong in all of my work, yeah, I'd need to take a nap. <laughs> it's like finding out, there's a, you know, it's, I, it's all this work I didn't expect to be, have to do. It's like finding out there's a major crack in your foundation and you're going to have to repair it. You have to lift the house, you're going to repair it. Then you're going to have to wait for the house to settle. And all the assumptions that were built on the foundation of whatever assumption you had, you have to wait for them to settle and patch. It's just exhausting. No wonder. I know we like to pretend we're just weighing ideas on a level playing field. We can't afford to. We got habits invested in all sorts of assumptions. It's hard to move a mind. If I were to discover that I was an asshole, what advice would you give me in combating that tendency? If you had discovered that you were an asshole, um, I think you would already be well on the way to not being one because assholes are designed to be, I really do end up thinking that God wasn't created in man's image, but an asshole's image. I um, And here's why. And I'm not saying that for the, the, I mean, I don't think I'm saying that for the flair of it. I mean, God has four core traits mm-hmm. and he, and they're played like a shell game. 
three of them in particular. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnificent. And on top of that, he's one. He cannot trick himself. He's got perfect integrity. So the asshole plays a shell game where because they are right, they deserve to win Mm. uh, by any dirty deed, no deed too dirty for a saint like them. And then because they're playing without having to play by the rules, because there's no deed too dirty for them, they will win, which proves that they are right and righteous. So it's actually a shell game. And if you ever point it out, they'll say, no, I've got perfect integrity. I mean, I've been amazed by how many assholes I've dealt with who the first card they played was that they are critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. Probably because their preacher, their pastor told them that they were or something like that. Of course. You know, it just, uh, you know, I got perfect integrity. They tell me, I said to them, I said to one of them, I said, dude, I have a PhD in this stuff. I would never claim I have perfect, perfect yeah. integrity. That is well beyond any human being. He said, no, I could take a lie detector test. I said, being honest and telling the truth are very different things. So anyway, no, I, I, I think that if you discovered that you were an asshole, you're well on the way to dealing with that. And you, unless you decided, I mean, the, the, there is a move that assholes often make, which is to say, yeah, I'm an asshole and I'm proud of it, would be the next move that you'd make. That is, you take any insult and, you know, the, the deplorables are now proud to be called the deplorables. And yes, this is something that lots of minorities have done over the years. Mm. It's a standard rhetorical move. But to make it automatically, like I'm proud of whatever uh, violation I make, I mean, I think that a lot of assholes end up playing prude and punk. They la- they shame you for not living up to moral oh. standards and laugh at you for having moral standards. And that's yeah. part of the game. That's, you know, that's that combination of I'm omniscient. I'm smart enough to know that all morality is bullshit. And I'm also going to moralize at you because I'm omnif- omnif- omnificent. And once again, nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with ideas. Yeah. It's just a move. It's just a habit. And I think one of the just gleaning from this conversation, I think one of the key things that we can do, and actually this is advice that I've been given by lots and lots of smart people. So even if it's not advice that you would give based on your theory of assholery, I think you'd probably agree with it anyway, is to make friends with people who think differently from you and see the world differently from the way you see the world. Yes, that's right. And actually, so one of the challenges is I don't want to attack the person and I don't want to grab their ideas. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. of it as... uh, they're wielding a blade by force of habit. They're wielding a, a, a sword. <laughs> yeah. And the sword is double-edged. They'll cut you either way. They'll shame you for, for, care, uh, for not living up to morals. And, you know. So if you grab the blade and try and deal with their ideas, you'll get cut. And you don't want to attack the person. What you want to do is grab the shank of the, you want to grab the hilt of the sword <clears throat> and say, this won't do. You can't go wielding this thing around here. In the name of whatever, I'm not interested in what your what your blade has to say. This is it, but but I have buddies who I think, um, you know, they have very different ideas from me. I don't I don't know if I have any asshole buddies anymore. They tend to be short. That's, those tend to be perishable relationships. But yeah. in part because I'm trying to disappoint them, I, I have to make it cost them, and uh, that's that's my civic duty. I think that's everyone's civic duty is that we have to we have to try to disappoint assholes. Because they'll keep doing it. It's a habit that works. As long as it works, there's no reason they would stop it. You kind of laid it out earlier, but I think it's important and I think that we should close on it. Can you lay out one more time how we rhetorically combat assholes effectively? Yes. uh, Simply put, there are two moves. First, I should say, be very careful where you do this. There are places where it's really dangerous to do it. Do it in front of an audience if you can, because primarily they're playing to an audience. Do not let them frame dominate. They don't get to call the shots and unnerve them by calling the shots. The way I flipped that thing about snark with that guy, you 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 undermine their frame framing of it. The two main moves are you just call them on the their use of the wild card trump card formula. They will say, "Look what he did. He did it again." He will say or do anything to 
feel triumphant moment to moment. And one of the benefits of that is that since it's all they do at this point, they will continue to try to do that. Do not take the bait. They will try to change the topic to whatever they think they can lure you in on. You just keep on saying, see what he did there again. The other one is you flaunt your fallibilism. You recognize that you are a name caller. You, you're trying to name call right, not wrong, that you are intolerant, that you do shame, that you do the things that every human does. Nothing human is foreign to you. You're just trying to do them in the right place, not the wrong place. So yes, I'm name calling like you, like everyone. I'm trying to name call right where it helps more than harms. You are pretending that you live by a rule that you obviously don't. That's what I call inverse psychology. Inverse meaning that you're seeing, you've got a, you've got a what I call um, inversatility. You've got the versatility to look at things from opposite sides, which is by my definition, wisdom. Mm-hmm. And you flaunt that at them. You don't pretend that you have the answers. You don't pretend to live by these moral absolutes like you're some kind of virtue maximizer. The, that's all in my book. It's also for free in my podcast. I mean, I just, I did a, I just, to finish editing the book, I read the whole thing and then edited it down. Um, it's all for free. I don't need to make any money off of this. I'm a libertarian. Um, so, <laughs> just kidding. But but what I'm saying is, you got, my podcast explains all of this and goes through the whole process. And I also have some videos on it. But those would be the two main tricks I would use. Also, I find very useful for undermining them. Uh, uh, clone to own what Sasha Baron Cohen does. That is you. You play into their argument, exaggerating, parodying them, but just under their radar. It's very unnerving to them. You basically yeah. give them your wet, their wet dream response, and everybody else can see you doing that, and they can't, and it unnerves them. There's a guy named Michael Malice, who you may or may not have heard of, but uh, he's sort of the master of that. Basically, I mean, he makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year doing that on Twitter just because people are so impressed by him that he gets, just gets PayPal donations. Yeah, no, that's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a popular move. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, plug your, plug your book and your podcasts and where people can find your writing and social medias and all that. Yeah, if, if, you, if you Google Jeremy Sherman, uh, you'll find way too much of me. I've got uh, 950 articles on psychology today, but also uh, you'll find some, if you go to jeremysherman.com, that's a consolidated repository uh, especially the media page, um, you'd find my videos. I've got a video channel called Psychoproctology. I've got one on the origins of life research. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got a podcast called Negotiate With Yourself and Win in which I debate myself fiercely. Um, and then- Oh, there's uh, a way to stop being an asshole right there. <laughs> that's Jeez. true. That's good. That's wow. good. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm easy to find if you look for me, jeremysherman.com. My, my, I have two- Two podcasts, two blogs on psychology today. One is called Ambigamy Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. Mm-hmm. And the other is Jerkology, which is uh, what makes some people tick like time bombs. All right. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there. I really appreciate your time tonight, Jeremy. And I am really looking forward to the audience feedback on this episode because I think we got pretty deep. And uh, this is stuff that I just love talking about. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, thank you for really conversing. I mean, this is great. Beautiful. All right. Great. See you later. Take care. All right. I told you you're going to like that conversation. It is one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far. And with 60 of them under my belt, well, I guess 59 because I did do that solo episode. So with 59 of them under my belt, I feel like I am probably at a place now to start ranking them. And that's probably in the top like three to five. So anyway, I hope you liked it. If you did not, let me know. If you did, certainly let me know. And in fact, the best way that you can let me know that you like the show is by leaving a review on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to the show on iTunes, if you have an iTunes account, log in for me and just leave a quick five-star review or, you know, an honest review with your rating and a few nice words for me. I really appreciate it. I like reading them. I know a lot of podcasters like to read the reviews on the air. To me, that seems a little hokey. But I don't know. Let me know. Hit reply on the email that you get from blackbirdpodcast.com. And let me know if reading the reviews on the air is an incentive. Maybe I'll do it. Is that it? I think that's it. Oh, yeah. Go to blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up. Use your email address if you want it for free. Throw me $7 a month or $70 a year to sign up for the paid premium feed. You get early access to these episodes up to a month in advance. You also get the 
conversations that I have with the guests prior to when I welcome them to the show. That is often some of the best content that you get. I know this conversation with Jeremy Sherman, we didn't know each other and we were also a little bit skeptical of each other because he comes from the left and I come more from the right of libertarianism, I guess. So we were kind of feeling each other out. It was a great pre-show conversation and led directly into this great interview. Okay, and that's it. Until the next episode of Blackbird, live free.